You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Commentary Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today is part three in our look at Nicholas Meyer as a novelist, uh, and we are going to be covering his second novel, The 7% Solution. And we're joined by a very special guest, John Tenuto. How's it going, John? Hi, guys. Thanks for having us. So now, John, I, I have to admit, um, I've kind of been, oh, I, I guess you could say stalking you for a few months now. Um, <laughs> I, I first saw you at a, a Star Trek convention in Chicago, uh, what, about a year ago? That's right, yeah. Yeah, and, and you were giving a presentation on, um, I, I guess it would be like deleted scenes from Nicholas Meyer's movies. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, they were... Um... They were based on the early drafts of uh, <clears throat> Nicholas Meyer's scripts for Star Trek's uh, two, four, and six. And uh, so, what the presentation did was it sort of looked at what these scenes were. They were scenes that were written and, in most cases, never filmed. Yeah, and, and it was it was really interesting. You know, I I, I enjoyed the pres- the presentation quite a bit. And um, then I kept on seeing your name pop up online in in strange places like. Uh, on Trek movie, you know, or, and, and stuff like that. And um, then I saw you on Twitter. I started following you. And then when, you know, Nicholas Meyer came around, I was like, oh, man, I want to talk to that dude. So thank you very much <laughs> okay. for uh, for doing this. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so today's movie, or it's not a movie, it's a book. Sorry. Today's book is The 7% Solution. Uh, which is a Sherlock Holmes mystery. So just to give sort of a brief synopsis of what, what the movie is about, um, it, it takes place... Movie? You said movie again. Book. Sorry. <laughs> I need to rewire my... Uh, yeah. Movies? Mm-hmm. It's a story which... It's not canon in the in the traditional Arthur Conan Doyle sense. In fact, it deliberately throws out certain stories in order to make it work. The basic premise of it is, you know, this is this is what would happen if Sherlock Holmes were to meet Sigmund Freud. And it it they, the way that they get into that story is through Sherlock Holmes's heroin addiction, you know. Cocaine. Is it oh, it's cocaine, I guess, cocaine. right? Okay. Yeah. Through his cocaine addiction, you know, um Watson essentially tricks him into going to Austria. Get... Always a good way to get someone off drugs, <laughs> tricking them into a rehab program. Yes, <laughs> to get treated by mm-hmm. Sigmund Freud. Yeah, and uh, through the course of that, you know, a, a mystery develops. So, so John, what what are your thoughts on the the book on the whole? One of the things that I like about it is it's kind of an example of um, fan or fan fiction, um, but done obviously on a professional level, uh, a published level. But it, it really is kind of what um, the book is kind of an example of what Henry Jenkins called, you know, textual poaching or, or fan fiction, where a fan, which Meyer is a fan of, uh, a, a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes, um, goes in and almost corrects problems that they see with, can, you know, canon. So, you know, we're familiar with that 
in the world of Star Trek with people taking stories or characters they don't like. Somebody doesn't like that Data died in a movie, or they don't like that way Captain Kirk dies in Generations, so they, they rewrite it in, in fan fiction. And in a way, that's what this is, but of course on a much more professional and, and um, you know interesting level where what Meyer did was he went back and he said, well, what, what can explain this, that, that what they call in the Sherlock Holmes fan world, the great hiatus, you know, this period of time that um, Holmes is sort of missing after his supposed death in a story called The Final Problem, where Moriarty and him go, go over the falls together. So he's gone for like three years, and then he comes back, and so he, he didn't die. And, and this book is really an attempt to kind of say, well, what really happened? Because that, that really wasn't what happened. He didn't die. Um, there was no fight. Uh, Moriarty was actually never a, a villain. Um, and uh, this story kind of goes in and, and picks picks at that kind of history a little bit, and um, it, and and in, and in doing so, really sort of in a way starts the whole Sherlock Holmes pastiche that we're used to now, where people put Sherlock Holmes with other people, or you know, kind of mess with the with the canon a little bit for for Sherlock Holmes. So I think it's a great example of that kind of writing probably one of the best examples of that kind of writing and then also um you know has that little connection to star trek that way that actually reminds me like you know like like mike i've, I've talked with mike about this in the past but I've, I've got a lot of problems with the original series of star trek and one of my tactics for dealing with the problems of that show is to say that it's fiction in the world of star trek which is essentially the same tool that meyer uses in in the seven percent solution by saying there are a lot of stories that don't work and i'm gonna say that uh watson made them up but the other ones happened and it's a very interesting approach it's a way of making it more real by admitting that some of it is fake as as far as this fitting into you know holmes canon i mean obviously it does contradict stuff which is which is considered to be part of the canon but you know i'm not really familiar with um you know the the works which have been done by other people aside from Meyer. I, I don't know if you guys know this, but but how how would you say this is regarded in relation to the other expanded Holmes fiction? I mean I, I imagine it's probably at the top of the list, right? Yeah, I mean this was a I mean it was this was such a monster hit. I mean it was it was on the New York Times bestseller list for 40 weeks or so and 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 I think it was the ninth, the ninth yeah, the ninth bestseller that year, I mean, that year had Jaws and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I mean, there were huge books that year. And um, the book sold really, really well. And I think because it sounds so authentic, it really sounds like it was written as part of those original set of stories um, in a way that nobody had done up till that point, And I don't know really that anybody has been able to do since that. I mean, in a way, it took a fan to write like that you know you you needed somebody who was who was as knowledgeable about Sherlock Holmes as Nicholas Meyer is to write that and then of course then you need additional qualities like being a good storyteller and so on and he has all of that so he he was sort of the perfect person I think to do this book it was you know and he was I mean when you look at the new show that they have on I think it's on CBS now I mean that's taking the character pretty far afield there are two Sherlock Holmes shows currently running. There's the BBC's Sherlock, and there's um, CBS's Elementary. Sherlock does it really well. Elementary doesn't do it so bad. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's the typical problem of updating something that maybe doesn't need to be updated. Yeah, well, I think Sherlock works really well. Have you watched Sherlock? 
Sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Have to, to, you know, it's a good place to see Cumberbatch in action before he's in action somewhere else this summer. You were talking about how uh, Meyer does a good job of sort of uh, capturing the the spirit of Holmes, and I find that to be really interesting because I really did feel like it. He he found uh, Doyle's voice. You know, he did a good job of of mimicking that style. And you know, if, if you look at uh, his first book, Target Practice, which we covered the last episode, he does a, a very similar um, type of story. You know, they're both detective fiction, but. Uh, different types of detective fiction and whereas uh target practice is super modern both in terms of uh um the story and then also in terms of the the style of of writing you know this he he goes in in the com- a complete opposite direction and and I, I was really impressed by his ability to adapt to the different subgenre yeah i think he's really i think he's great at that i mean he does I mean, if you look at his whole career um, both as a writer and a director, but especially as a writer, um, you know, he, he's had to do that a bunch of times. He's had to kind of come into something that pre-exists and has its own voice, and then he has to come in and, you know, make it something um, maybe, you know, different, modern, uh, tell a new story in there, but keep it within that, that world. So, like, when he, I think what he, what he used to say about Star Trek is really true of Sherlock Holmes too. I mean that there's a he used to compare Star Trek to the Catholic Mass, where there's certain things that are set the same every week. Um, you know, in the Catholic Church, the, the sort of the steps of the service are the same. What changes is the music, the 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 readings, the you know the the message that week. But then there's certain things that are sort of set in stone, and that's that's the way it is when he came in with Star Trek. I mean, you had the actor set, you had the Enterprise. There were certain things that you, you have to keep the same. And then around that, you generate something that's new and interesting. And I think he did that with, with this book, too. He, he took the contrivances and the, the heart of Sherlock Holmes and then built something new around it, which was this idea of having, you know, Holmes and Freud, you know, on an adventure together, which is just great because, you know, in, in many ways, Sherlock Holmes as a detective and, and Freud as a as a psychoanalyst, really are doing the same thing. They're both sort of solving mysteries based on clues. And, uh, you know, whether those clues are footprints or symptoms of a patient, they're both really doing the same thing. And it was a great idea to kind of put those two worlds together like that, but then keep it, you know, in the voice of of the originals uh, so that it feels like it belongs to that world. All right. So um, in terms of like looking at this in Meyer's career on the whole, you know, he he wrote this or the book came out in uh, 1974 when Meyer was only 29 years old. Uh, It it came out actually just three months after uh, target practice. Um, So you had two, you know, one right after the other. Um, And this was obviously much more uh, well received than target practice became a, a huge hit, like like you were saying. But yeah, we talked about how you know both of them were de- detective fiction, but you know different types of detective fiction. I I, I find that interesting that there's um, a lot of uh, similarities in terms of like themes and also uh, just um, devices, which which are are present in both Target Practice and Seven Percent Solution. You know, obviously they're both detective books, but then they're also kind of set against the backdrop of of war. Um, they both have uh, like a a pretty heavy psychological component. Um, so, so you're saying Target Practice, Seven Percent Solution, and Star Trek Six have a lot of thing, things in common. 
I mean, I guess so. And Star oh. Trek Six too. Sure, yeah. And then there's the the there, there's even a, a drug addiction subplot in in Target Practice. But yeah, I, I find that interesting. That I mean, these are obviously things which seem to be uh, interesting to him. You know, in 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 particular, the the psychology aspect I, I think is uh, is interesting. If I know the history right, I think Target Practice was written after this, but came out before. The reasoning that reason Target Practice came out first was because. I believe there was just there was a long gestation period of trying to get the rights, you know, to use. They could use Freud because he was dead, um, but they couldn't use, you know, Doyle as a licensed character. So they needed to to get permissions and and uh, you know whatever deals needed to be struck. And uh, and I think he was sort of like you know waiting around for the book to come out and, and wrote wrote that other book, wrote Target Practice, and then but that wound up coming out first because it was a totally original storyline you know and then of course the the psychology part of that of of a lot of his works i think um you know would stem from his from his father i would believe him his father was a was a was a psychiatrist oh that's interesting i didn't know that his dad was a a psychiatrist but that that makes a lot more sense now Okay, so this book actually had two sequels, uh, one which came out just a couple years later called The West End Horror, and then another one in 1993 called The Canary Trainer. Have you read either of those, John? I did uh, a long time ago. Um, Actually, when Canary Trainer came out, I read that. Uh, And West End Horror, I read uh, after that, believe it or not. Well, it actually takes place after that, right? The Canary Trainer, if my memory serves, is is a lot more of a sequel to uh, The 7% Solution, whereas The West End Horror is is like an adventure. If if my memory is right, it's more like a separate adventure, uh, another Holmes tale, where Canary Trainer, I think, might be a little more connected to, to that. Although in West End Horror, I think he meets a bunch of people, too. It isn't as it isn't as dramatically uh, important as as meeting Sigmund Freud is in this book. Though. Well, that, that is a thing that he does. I mean, he seems to do that um, e- even in uh, in Seven Percent Solution. Like aside from Sigmund Freud, there's a number of characters, both uh, fictional and non-fictional, which he crosses paths with. And uh, at times, it seems a little bit cheesy. I don't know. I mean, it seems to be a thing that Meyer likes to do. I mean, he also does that in. Uh, Time after time, of course. Well, in time after time, that's sort of the whole movie. Well, yeah, I know. I mean, it's very similar to this yeah. and that. But I mean, like that seems to be like a thing. It does seem like he was like, "Oh, I really like doing that. That's fun having characters meet historical and fictional figures from various points." I know. I'll write a movie about that happening every scene. What do you guys think about that choice in general? Well, I think maybe now it's in some ways now it may be a little more passe, and in a way, it may be like. You know, we, we, we think of that as, oh, that's, you know, that's like the young Indiana Jones TV show where he bumps into every historical figure, you know, of the era. I think, you know, now, uh, you know, if we put ourselves back in that era, especially the, the Sigmund Freud and, and Sherlock Holmes kind of connection, it was kind of a fresh idea back then. I mean, the whole notion of sort of combining, you know, even just combining franchises, even within the same world, I mean, you didn't see you know, too many Superman, Batman crossover, you know, I mean, that whole idea of doing crossovers like that really wasn't a big part of the consciousness. And I think, you know, this book and and other um, uh, popular culture items of that era where you have those types of crossovers, 
you know, now we're used to alien predator, you know, uh, those type of things. But I think the idea of mixing either real world people within these fictional stories or, um, you know, fictional characters crossing over into other fictional uh, character adventures at, at the time of the 7% solution was a pretty new idea. So, um, the, the, um, the thing, yeah, the movie, no, I'm sorry. The the, the book. Well, no, I was going to talk about the movie actually. Okay. The the movie. Uh, he wrote the screenplay himself, and it was uh, nominated for for best uh, adapted screenplay. Now I tried desperately to find a copy of this movie, and I couldn't. It's not on Netflix or anything like that. So I I, I actually didn't get to see it. I think it's might maybe out of print. Uh, January twenty second. It's actually going to be out on Blu-ray. Believe it or not. Oh, all right. Sweet. Well, what do you guys think about the movie? Yeah, I, th- I, I really like the film. Um, uh, there's a lot in there I, you know, that I like. I just like certain things that are kind of fresh and different. The, the credits are fun because they, they're not only in the style of you would, you would imagine the credits being if a film had been made back then, um, but they have like um, footnotes in the in the credits which are great you know as you're watching so you have to read the credit and there's a little footnote what i what i think is fascinating is when he was writing the script for the film he was ejecting things out of his book like he didn't he was he wanted to up the mystery a little bit more um and it was interesting because the director uh, herbert ross would tell meyer no you need to put that back in you know you, <laughs> you you know that's a great scene people want that scene and so um I think Meyer, being a relatively new screenwriter at that time, he had only written um, a few films uh, before then. You know, he was he was finding his 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 way as a, as a screenplay author. And I think, you know, one of the things he criticizes himself for is, um, you know, he, he has a tendency or had a tendency at least when he first started writing to do too much dialogue. And, you know, the film is heavy on dialogue, but it's good dialogue, and it's really interesting. I think the big problem for both the book and the movie is Watson, in a way, you know, Freud is Watson in the story. And you have, so you have two Watson. Yeah, so Watson, you know, he's important because he's the one that brings, you know, the cocaine-addicted uh, Holmes to Freud. But in some ways, after that, he be, he's not important to the mystery. It's more Freud, and the fun is Freud and Holmes. So, but it's wonderful to see their inter- interactions in the movie. I would the film is really great. I'm so happy it's coming out on Blu-ray. So I hope a whole new audience of people can can kind of get exposed to it because it is a fun, um, you know, film. It's got some action adventure. It's you know, and it's really well written. And it's a and it's a a very good adaption from book to to film, I think. So, seeing as how it was adapted by the guy who who wrote the uh, source material, you know, and and um, it, that you know is a unique opportunity for a writer to go back and revise and and you know alter some of the things that he may not have uh, thought he got right the first time around. Do you guys think that the book is superior or the movie? I would say the movie. I mean, for lots of different reasons. But I mean, I think that the the, the the tennis scene in the book, it doesn't make any sense. It's 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 incomprehensible. Tennis is is difficult to follow even when you're watching it. No, it's not. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, I got a point. Now I'm up by fifteen. <laughs> what about you, John? Well, I mean, it's it's you know, I think they're two. They're so 
they're two different mediums, and in some ways, I think because it's so talky, um, it may work better as a book um, or a play, I guess. Uh, but of course, you know the, the the train chase and all of that. I mean, the film they kind of upped Moriarty's, um, you know, the the revelation. I don't want to spoil the book for anybody or the movie if people haven't seen it. But the the revelation of really why Holmes is who he is, which comes at the very end of the book and the very end of the film. And, you know, Moriarty, maybe because he's played by Laurence Olivier, uh, is a little more central to that. But, you know, I think for anybody getting into Holmes, this is actually the, a good place to start. Yeah, it has a good origin story, which Holmes never really had. Right. I mean, it really helps you understand who is this character. And it this is a great place to start because it does give you, I think, a good picture of what you you're, whether you start with the book or the film version of it um, and then go back and read. It helps you to kind of you have a sort of a, a good face to put to those books and, and a good a voice to put to those original books and original short stories. OK, so now to tie this all back to Star Trek, um, I have one one last little thing. Um, there's, you know, a, a line in. Um uh, Star Trek Six, which I'm assuming was written by Meyer, I mean, and not not uh, his co-writer, um, where Spock says that one of his ancestors uh, said that when you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however unlikely, is the truth, or something to that effect. That's obviously a Sherlock Holmes uh, axiom. It's and it's obviously something which which Nicholas Meyer uh, is very fond of. He he brings it up in Target Practice even. And the idea of him bringing it into Star Trek and applying it to Spock only makes sense. And, and you know, Spock being a Vulcan, it, that seems like a very Vulcan philosophy. But I have since heard speculation from fans, I'm assuming, that the intention may have been to say that Sherlock Holmes is actually one of Spock's ancestors on his human side. First off, have you guys heard that? And what do you guys think about it? Of course I've heard about it. And Meyer brings it up on the commentary to Star Trek Six. Does he? Yes. Okay. What do you think about it, John? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that line is uttered by Holmes, I think, a few times, or derivations of it. I think it's in, like, the story, The Sign of the Four. Um, and it's, you know, verbatim in, in, in uh, Star Trek Six, And then the new Spock says it again in Star Trek 2009. If you want to enjoy Star Trek Two a little more, read Moby Dick. Uh, if you want to enjoy Star Trek Six a little more, read... Sherlock Holmes, because I think, I mean, the whole mystery is a Sherlock Holmes mystery. Spock is Sherlock Holmes in that movie. That's his function. And and the crew, you know, Chekhov is the Nigel Bruce bumbling version of, of Watson, and Valeris is the more Conan Doyle version of of uh, Watson and so on. And I think that I think the crew sort of serves as Watson, uh, or at least the co-partner in Spock as he kind of goes through um, and try to solve the mystery. So it makes sense to connect Spock with Sherlock Holmes. Because he certainly writes, even in four, there's the whole thing of, I don't guess, you know, um, which Meyer, of course, wrote Star Trek Four with, with Harv Bennett. And there's the whole I don't guess business, which is a big part of, you know, it's an insult to uh, to Sherlock Holmes if you say, you know, is that a guess? You know, of course it's not a guess. I, I base things on facts. I mean, so I think there's elements of Spock as Sherlock Holmes in all of Meyer's versions of Star Trek, but 
especially Star Trek VI. I mean, half the movie is a mystery. What, what Mike is going for here is he wants you to say that Star Trek fits into Sherlock Holmes <laughs> well, continuity. Well, 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 I mean, for, first off, I, yeah, I never really thought about Star Trek VI like that, and it, it, that does make a lot of sense. I'm going to have to watch it again now, looking at it as a Sherlock Holmes mystery. But, yeah, that, that's that's fascinating. But yeah, no, I, I am curious. Like, do you think do you think Star Trek fits into Star into Sherlock Holmes continuity? Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly they're the the in the future they're aware of Sherlock Holmes, right? You've got Data playing him, and there's a starship named the USS Sherlock Holmes in the conspiracy episode, and um, you know, there's and Picard loved you know talks teaches right. Data tells Data about Sherlock Holmes. I think. Yeah, there's a problem with the, with that because they do actually talk about how Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character and Moriarty's a fictional character. Remember uh, Ship in a Bottle? Moriarty okay. comes back. All right, but but I mean, could that be also you know just a, a scenario where Sherlock Holmes existed like Sigmund Freud existed? Yeah, yeah. And and you know, Doyle hypertime hypertime fictionalized. Just drop hypertime in there. It makes it all make sense. Okay. All right. <laughs> I want to believe. But, but the other interpretation of the Spock scene is that his ancestor is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, right? Oh, yeah, that could be. Oh, That's wow. what Meyer says. But remember, Meyer always says, my, my interpretation and your interpretation is as valid as his, right? That's one of his big things, is he doesn't have any answers to, to these things that, that the audience's view on it is just as good as the people who wrote it and directed it. So I mean I think it's fair to say that uh, it's possible that as if we want to make it real, you know, <laughs> that that he is related to Conan Doyle and Doyle he, Spock was speaking of the writings of his ancestor. You're you're much more logical about it than most uh, Star Trek fans dealing with uh, expanded universe continuity. <laughs> and any final thoughts on the seven percent solution, John? Well, I just I'd, I'd encourage anybody who likes uh, certainly if you like Sherlock Holmes, if you haven't read it or haven't read it in a while, it's fun to read it, read it again, and also great to read it and 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 think of it in terms of the of Star Trek VI. I think and connect those two uh, together. It's kind of a fun and the point you guys made is really really true. I mean, target practice seven uh, percent solution Star Trek VI thematically share a lot in common. So. It's a great way to kind of put those three worlds together. What about you, Max? The book is the book is really good. It's a really good example of a Sherlock Holmes story done by someone who isn't Conan Doyle. And considering there are a number of Sherlock Holmes stories done by Conan Doyle that are not good, it's impressive that somebody who wasn't him managed to do it well. But it also sort of seems logical that somebody who wasn't him wouldn't be blinded by his own personal biases. And, and was able to recognize what was good in it and what was bad in it and excise the things that were bad. And I wish that Meyer had been a little bit more bold with his um, uh, continuity revising logic because it would have been really nice if at the beginning of Star Trek VI he just had a list of episodes that never happened. Like <laughs> Doomsday Machine, never happened. Yeah, I, I, I also enjoyed the book quite a bit. Um, I, I was actually a lot more interested in the uh, the sort of first half intro, you know, the idea of getting... Uh, Holmes off of cocaine uh, that I found that to be more interesting than the actual mystery which I thought was a little weak but uh, well I remember watching it as a kid I remember seeing the movie as a kid and thinking that it was like oh just another Sherlock Holmes movie mm -hmm. I watched it like just another Sherlock Holmes movie and then when I picked up the book I was like oh that book that's the Sherlock Holmes movie that I saw when I was a kid and I was reading it and I was like is this really about him getting off drugs 
how much of this book is about him getting off drugs? It's and I was like, it's freaking like rehab. It's like the 12 step program, but in a novel. And it's Sherlock Holmes and Sigmund Freud. And seriously, this is the story? Yeah. It's totally insane. Yeah, but really cool. John, uh, where, where can people find you? Or what, what, what have you got going on that people might be interested in? Well, if, um, if anyone's interested, uh, I'm going to be doing a series of talks in the uh, Chicagoland area, more uh, on the, the, the northern suburbs, but uh, a bunch of library talks. Um, some of them are going to be about Star Trek collectibles. Some of them are going to be um, a really, hopefully, fun, brand-new talk that I've developed. Uh, I was able to get a um, permission of Paramount to go in and look at the, all the archives for the making of Space Seed. Oh, oh wow. my God, dude. Okay, um, uh, this is just me. I want. I want to ask you a question. Are you going to be making a book about this kind of thing anytime soon? Because I would love to have a reference of this. And, like all of these things are really fascinating to me, but I can't do all that driving. <laughs> I would love to. I just got uh, uh, thanks to uh, Mr. Meyer's permission and, and the University of uh, Iowa. Uh, I just got another three hundred new photos that I don't think most people have ever seen before. Uh, we, we digitize them. Uh, we're going to be showing them this summer at the, uh, uh, in the, at the May convention in, uh, that Creation Entertainment is doing uh, in Chicago. And it's great. We've got photos of the, the con baby scene, um, which was a scene in Star Trek II where there was a little uh, kid. It, 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 it wasn't Khan's baby, but it was a Khan, Khan's people's baby kind of to show that they were procreating and the baby crawls next to the Genesis device as it goes off. <laughs> oh, a, God! A, you know, a very dark, a, a, a very dark, very dark sequence. Wow. It was never filmed. Uh, they tried to film it. It just didn't work as a scene and uh, we've got photos of that we also have uh, photos of um, Kirk and his son have a much bigger physical fight and what what I love about Meyer is this idea of his that art thrives on limitations and I think Star Trek is about the best example of something that's wonderful that is always coming out of you know limited budgets limited special effects limited time frames parsimony yeah, all, you know the, the sort of Roddenberry rules that you have to live by all these limitations that make Star Trek fantastic and so that's what drives a lot of the research that my wife and I do um, is this I, that idea of looking at the making of these things and how they were able to produce such really good things often without um, you know a whole lot of time money and you know whatever it was that they were limited on and so um, the space seed research is fascinating because it's we've discovered a few things that people don't know um, about uh, the character of Khan how the character of Khan developed, and just some really great, we got behind-the-scenes photos, and just some really great things, and we're going to be sharing those uh, you know, in, the, in a series of talks. So if anybody's interested and wants to know kind of where they're at or whatever, they can just give me an email at, uh, at the college. Uh, it's just uh, jtenuto, just my name, jtenuto, T-E-N-U-T-O, uh, at clcillinois.com. Edu and uh, Illinois is spelled out, or they could just go to the College of Lake County website and find me there and email me through there, and I can send them a list of the libraries and everything that we're going to be um, we're going to be talking to uh, about Star Trek. So it should be fun. And as always, did Gunn have the ability to change his accent and turn into a white guy? Khan started out as a as a as a character uh, who named Harold Erickson among other names. Um, and uh, one of the things we discovered through the research, uh, only because we were able to put uh, 
certain pieces of paper next to each other um, that have never been put next to each other before um, was that uh, Khan was changed into Khan because of the casting of Ricardo Montalban. It wasn't the other way around. So Montalban was cast to play the Harold Erickson Viking Aryan guy, and of course um, they decided, great actor, let's change the background of this character and make him different. And um, that's where Khan was born out of. So really Montalban had a big part in, in, in the crafting of the background of that character from the way it was originally going to be played out. In fact, the script, um, one of the versions of the script has changed the name Erickson in the script to Khan all the way through because that was done so late. Um, it was the casting director who kind of came up with the idea of, for whatever reason, no one knows why, but thought of Montalban for this role when he wasn't what was described on the page, except that, of course, he's a great actor, had worked with uh, Roddenberry before um, on, on Rodden, one of Roddenberry's first science fiction uh, pieces for TV. Um, and, uh, you know, Roddenberry thought it was a great idea, but it necessitated changing the character. So if, if Cumberbatch is Khan, it, it, it's much more, yeah, it's much more, I think, the initial design of the character um, as Carrie Wilbur and Gene Kuhn had envisioned the character. And then the changes that were made were really made for Ricardo Montalban. And in a way, you know, I can't think of anybody else playing that role. I mean, he's so phenomenal in it, and uh, both uh, in Space Seed and, and, and especially in, in Wrath of Khan. And so it, it, this is only an opinion, but if Cumberbatch is Khan, it, you know, if, um, which is the rumor, um, you know, it may be the wisest thing in the world because you it, continuity, no. Fan, the fans who really care about that kind of stuff, no, because you're changing something um, about the character. But I don't, you can't duplicate Montalban, so why try? And if you're not going to duplicate him, then go a different direction. And maybe the direction they went with was to go back to the original. Hey, I like the idea that the timeline shift caused them to, to revert to an earlier draft. <laughs> I think that's a really cool idea. <laughs> but, you know, I, I love, uh, you know, I love uh, Khan. I love the character of Khan. I love uh, studying how he developed and, and uh, his role. Because he really, he is, to, I mean, he's in a way, he's like Moriarty. You know, he's the, he's the, he's not in every story, um, but he's the villain against which all other Star Trek villains are measured. And I think that Star Trek II is the, obviously the benchmark upon which all Star Trek films are measured. Sweet. Awesome. And you're, you're also on Twitter, right? I am on Twitter, too. It's just Jay Tenuto. Cool. All right. Well, as always, you can find us. Um, you can find our other show at CommentaryTrackStars.com. You can find us on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. And, of course, this show's on Trek.fm, where you can find numerous other movies. cool shows and movies. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us, John. It's It's been uh, really cool, and you're welcome back anytime you want. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. All right. Well, next week, uh, we'll be back with the next uh, Nicholas Meyer Sherlock Holmes novel, The West End Horror.